0: Hello. All right, there we go. All right, I'm going to add. add Bill because he's just asked me if I was talking to you. And there he is staring at me with that mean look. Hey, he looks psycho. oh, hey.
1: <laughs> Are you talking about my picture? Yes. No,
0: no, not at all. No, we're talking about your picture, dude.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I've since then cut my hair, yeah, yeah.
2: <laughs> you <laughs> look know, like you're I... about to cut me That's what scares me about that <laughs> picture
0: Back to the bin.
2: Hello and welcome to Back to the Bins. This is episode 103 and my name is Scott Gardner. I am joined in this episode by my good buddies Paul Spitaro, hello there, and Bill Robinson. Good evening. <laughs> good evening. And this is uh, this is a special episode of sorts because, well, Paul, I think uh, if I'm not mistaken, I think you get the credit on this one, buddy. That you kind of you kind of inspired us to uh, do an impromptu theme month here uh, with your selection this time around. Yeah, I consider myself to be inspirational.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, it, last week, uh, Phil and I read an email where somebody asked about. Uh, us doing licensed properties, mm-hmm. so from that I picked a Star Trek book this week for my independent, and that just set you guys off all jealous that you couldn't handle that I had a Star Trek book and you didn't. <laughs> so now we all have Star Trek books.
2: Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I like this idea. I, I, I you know, when I, when we, I don't know how exactly we hit upon it, but when we hit upon it, I was like, hey, I think this is a cool idea. So.
1: Give the people what they want. Exactly. Well, plus it gave
2: me a chance to dig out something that, you know, I, I have had in my collection forever, hadn't had a chance to read, and uh, I don't know where in the world I would ever have covered it otherwise. So, yeah, I'll, I'll leave the listeners wondering about that. Real quick before we get into this, I just want to say... Uh, I really enjoyed the last episode that you guys did and uh I'm really sorely regret that I missed the recording on that one because you guys both covered um books that I would have had a hell of a lot to say <laughs> about because that era of Thor that that you covered Bill that's you know I love the Walt Simonson era You know, it's great stuff and everything, but I would actually say if I had to say, you know, if I had to name an era that I would say that's my era of Thor, I'd probably pick actually the um, the friends and uh, um, God, what was his name? The writer on that Um, Uh, DeFalco, the DeFalco friends era of Thor as as really more my era than the the Simonson as much as I love that stuff, because I really enjoyed that era of Thor. I thought it was great. And uh, Paul, we'll have to have a longer conversation at some point about uh, about the Will Payton Starman because I really loved that series when it was coming out, and then as soon as Stern left, it kind of tanked. But right, I'm going to have to read more of those. It was really good, and it you guys were right. You were you were very close when you were talking about the connections that that series was eventually revealed to have with the James Robinson Starman, It had several, and I don't want to spoil the big one. There was a really big one that was revealed, which I'll just say, I feel was like one of the very few missteps that Robinson ever made in his Starman series was when, uh, when Will Payton is revealed to be who he is ultimately revealed to be. I thought it was kind of stupid, but there was a really great one where, um, James Robinson's star man uh, there was a character named Jack Knight his girlfriend is ultimately ultimately revealed to be Will Payton's sister and I thought that was really cool because she had changed her name or she was going by a different name or something so nobody really realized who she was until late in the series and I always thought that
1: was really cool isn't
2: doesn't
1: Jack Knight he's not the shade is he
2: no, no, that was a that was a different character. That was a character but, in the series.
1: Oh, okay. The, the
0: James Robinson Starman is that the Starman from Legion of Superheroes?
2: No, 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 no. He he was. For some reason in, I always thought it was. No, he's in there at some point. He has a connection. See, that book was cool because it, basically all characters that had ever gone by the name Starman have a connection in that book, and they all are featured in different ways in that book. So he does eventually meet up with. Um, the star man of of Legion of Superheroes, but they're not one and the same.
0: I'm going to have to read all of
2: that, which is uh, going to be quite the undertaking when I do it. You'll blow right through it, believe me, you will. It's it's phenomenal stuff. It's only 80 issues, which sound which may sound like a lot, but it's a quick read. It really is. But it's it's solid, really solid stuff. But anyway, I didn't mean to to. Take too much of the opener. I just wanted to mention that that I thought you guys did a really good job I was so jealous not being able to sit <laughs> in on that one.
0: Thank you. You know, we we were talking about how cool it was to do it without you. Piss on the boat yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, of you. No, of course we miss you when you're not there. You're uh yeah, sure you you're be. our leader.
1: Sure I guess like I guess we finally paid the gardener, so he came back. <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> All right, so I think you got the first book, right? Uh, we're gonna quickly go through the email before we oh, do that. Oh, yes, that's right. We might want to do that. Yeah, since we talked about that like 5 seconds ago and I forgot already.
1: All Maybe right. Mr. So, short-term memory. Oh, I'm telling you, it is awful, awful. Meet him once, you'll meet him twice, Mr. short-term memory.
2: Mel <laughs> Mel here. Here's the mail. We got one here. This one's from uh, Mike Voiles. Now, Mike does the uh, Mike's Amazing World of Comics site that you can find at uh, www. Is it DC? Ind- yeah, it's right here. com. And he just writes real quick to say congrats on episode 100. Even though your count of episodes uh, near the end... Uh, reminded me of the way DC and Marvel count issues. He says, I'm kind of surprised that you didn't reboot with a new number one episode and claim that all the other <laughs> episodes never happened. You know, what's funny is I actually did consider restarting with with number one on Back to the Bins, but I wasn't going to claim the other ones never happened because I'm pretty proud of this show. He says, then uh, in each new episode, you could just rehash the same old episodes <laughs> minus the red underwear. He says, here's to the next 100-ish episodes. Regards, and that's just from Mike Voiles. Thank you, Mike. We do appreciate that.
0: Very much. Thanks, Mike. Thank
1: you.
2: And
0: uh, I'm going to jump right into our next email, which is from Mike Parker. Just finished episode 100. Great episode. I had a few thoughts I wanted to share. A few times I heard references to comics being bought and never read. I go, I go to local shows once or twice a month. And avoid this by having two short boxes reserved for pickups from the shows. If somehow those two boxes fill up, I don't buy anything new until there's room. As far as space, the same applies. I have a designated area for my collection. When that area is full, I will have to sell books if I want more. Hmm. While I appreciate laser focus part of the fun part of the fun for I, I think it got cut off here. Part of the fun, I just think it's part of the fun for me is reading things I couldn't during my childhood because of financial restrictions. And funny, I feel more financially restricted now as an adult than I did yeah. as a kid with these <laughs> books. No kidding. For example, while I bought the Spider-Man titles every month, anything else I had to rotate in and out. So all these years later, finally being able to read, say, the full early 80s run of Iron Man is a lot of fun. Finally, for anyone having trouble locating cheap stuff on eBay, I recommend searching Amazon. I've gotten a few cheap and mid-level books from sellers there, reasonably priced. Yes, it's still not perfect because you'll often pay more in shipping than for the book itself, but you just need those one or two issues paying $1 plus, say, $2 shipping isn't, ba- isn't a bad way to get them. Mm-hmm. Great show, as always. Keep it up. I, I appreciate Mike's thoughts, but the idea of... Uh, putting some sort of arbitrary limit on what I have available to me kind of goes against the whole thought I had in collecting comics <laughs> my whole life.
2: You know what I mean? Well, I think I think in his instance is kind of and I don't want to put words in his mouth, but this kind of sounds to me like the the reader mentality versus the collector mentality which um I First and foremost, consider myself a reader of comics, but at the same rate, you know, as we talked about not long ago, I, I have long since lost that ability to read something and then let it go. You know, I I, I I get it and then I have to own it. I have to keep it. You know, I always have that fear of I'm going to need to reference it back and I want it here physically, you know, that Ooh. sort of
1: thing. So. Scott, Scott Gardner, the Daffy Duck of comic collecting. <laughs> Mine, mine, mine. Down, down, down. Go, go, go.
2: Exactly.
0: That's I'm it, exactly. I'm a wealthy miser. I'm rich. I'm rich. <laughs> All right, we got one more email to go to motor through the email. And I don't mean to pay that- short shrift to the email that we're running through, but we're just trying to squeeze everybody in and without missing out on anything here.
1: Is that the uh, one from Tom Paneris? One yeah. One from our,
0: our good buddy Tom.
1: Do you want to take it, Bill? Yeah. Okay. Dear Scott, Mike, and Paul. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> Go ahead, Bill. <laughs> yeah. No, it's okay. Congratulations on finally reaching episode 100. And after learning what you guys were going to do for such a milestone, I have to say, I think that your very laid-back talk about intricacies of a comics addiction was absolutely great. Oh, thanks. I str- I've struggled with such an addiction off and on through the years. Recently, having gone to the methadone clinic stage, <laughs> in which I don't hunt down a lot of back issues but try to get cheap trades instead. Although I will say that I, I do still have a couple of runs I'm trying to complete and get a nice rush whenever I find a missing issue on the cheap. Ah, your discussion of death and comics collecting oh, Jesus. <laughs> really struck a chord with me. <laughs> Last week, one of my colleagues passed away rather suddenly.
2: Oh, geez, I'm sorry. I, say, I, I, I should look at the next line before I start yeah, laughing. I, sorry I, about the that, line, As
1: you were laughing, I'm like, oof. I'm sorry, Tom.
2: <laughs> I, I didn't mean to be an insensitive ass. I literally did not read ahead on this. Yeah, I never mean to be an <laughs> insensitive ass, but I often am. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
1: I wonder if he had a comic casket. Anyway, what, made it, what made it particularly tough was that his colleague – was, what was that? This colleague was in my department, and I oh knew her personally. So going in and putting in a few, full day's work while dealing with upset students and teachers and my own grief was tough. I attended the funeral Sunday morning and wound up listening to episode 100 that afternoon while I was doing some chores around the house. When you got to the part about what will happen to your comic collections when you die, especially Paul's comment that you'd all leave Mike's funeral carrying a long box, I laughed out loud. Not just because I was thinking that just before Paul said it, sorry Mike, but because I guess with death having been on my mind early in the day, I needed a hearty laugh like that. Furthermore, I appreciate both the lightheartedness and seriousness of your conversation because you all have such a great perspective and I left the episode feeling a little more upbeat. That may have come from feeling reassured that I didn't need to have the biggest comic collection out there. I sold most of mine years ago. But there are times when listening to you guys feels like we're all sharing a couple of drinks at a bar somewhere, and this was definitely one of those times. It was cathartic in some way, and I really appreciate that. I'm sorry to have gotten so personal with this email, especially when I simply wanted to write in about how much I enjoyed the episode. Keep up the great work, and I'll look forward to episodes 150, 200, and beyond. All that being said, if any of you... Are writing, or revising a will in the near future, let me know and I will send you a want list. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, again,
2: I just want to apologize, Tom. I, I literally, uh, you know, I hadn't seen any of the emails that are in here today uh, except the first one that I read. Um, so I hadn't read your email, and uh, so I, I was not making fun. But uh, that said... Uh, wow, you know you you really strike a chord uh, for me in this uh, in this email. I really appreciate it i I think this is one of the nicest uh you know just kind of give me the warm fuzzies kind of emails that uh that i 've ever had written into a show that I was a part of. I really appreciate it and it 's funny you know you guys won 't hear this um, by the time you 're listening to to this right now you know you 'll have heard episode 101 But I was just uh, editing episode 101 the other day, and there was some conversation at the very beginning of it where we were all just kind of wondering, how is episode 100 going to go off? You know, We'd we'd had some time to think about that recording by that point. So when we got back together to do 101, one of the things that came up instantly was like, was that a good show? Because we went really dark in that one, and we were all kind of worried that maybe it was just a big bummer. So your email really makes me feel good about that show because when I listened back to it and did the editing and put the show together, I thought, no, I think I think it was really good. I think that was a really solid conversation, and yeah, it went a little dark, but you know, I, I felt like the, the 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 comedy and the sincerity kind of bore out, you know, and 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 kind of glossed over anything that was it was truly like dark humor type of thing. So. Uh, it's a long-winded way of saying I really appreciate your email. I'm glad that it that it did, uh, you know, strike a chord with you, but also you know, kind of helped you uh, with the grieving process, and uh, you know, condolences on the death of your friend. That's I know that sucks.
0: Yeah, I agree with certainly that. My condolences as well. But I also I would say, uh, on episodes of the two True Freaks broadcasts, the various things that are on, some of the ones I've enjoyed the most that I haven't been a part of. Uh, have been ones where I'm sitting in the car driving, listening to it, and there's a conversation going on, and I feel like I'm part of the conversation, which is kind of the impression I got from Tom's email, that, that he kind of had that feeling. And I know those are the shows I've enjoyed the most, so to have been a part of one that made somebody else feel that way, uh, it gives me a sense of pride, and I really I really do appreciate the email. Absolutely.
2: Absolutely.
1: Yes, thank you, Tom. Uh, uh... Yeah, I wish I'd read ahead a little further into it, too, before I made a joke about the comic casket. Sorry about
0: that. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure he's – Tom's got a good sense of humor.
2: I'm Tom's sure he's a, fine yeah, with it. Tom's a good guy. Tom's a good guy. He'll he'll understand. I hope. <laughs> oh, we're getting a <laughs> nasty email going, you insensitive friends. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, with that we are all caught up on the emails. So thanks for the emails guys and continue to write into the show. You know, we we love them. We read them. So keep on uh, writing in. Let us know what you think about the show. I'm independent.
1: Yeah? Me too.
0: I'm w- whatever you said. Independent.
1: Hey, what do you say we both be independent together, huh?
0: And normally we go Marvel, DC, indie, but uh, since we did go with the Star Trek theme, we decided to go in order of publication. Mm -hmm. And I have the earliest book because I, when I picked my book, I had the indie and I decided, let me pick a gold key Star Trek book because I have the CD or the DVD, rather, with all the uh, PDFs of all the various Star Trek issues, and I've never read any of these gold key issues, and I was pretty confident that they would be (laughs) god-awful. But I also didn't think it would conflict with anything you're doing on Star Trek Monthly Monday, and I thought it would be a good choice. So, I picked Star Trek number 61, which is the final gold key issue. It's dated March of 1979, and it has a $0.35 cover price. The cover has a picture of uh, Kirk and Spock with a couple of hippie-looking Klingons in the background. And Spock has thrown something that caused an explosion. It's, I would say, kind of a weak cover. I tried to look it up on uh, comic, the comic book database online to see who the cover artist was, but it lists it as cover artist unknown. The issue is, or well, the title of the issue is called Operation Con Game. It's written by George Kashtan. And the art is by Al McWilliams. Nobody is credited with uh, any of the coloring or the lettering in the issue. Uh, the splash page is a little confusing. It shows the Enterprise and a Klingon ship with two insets. One shows Scotty and some unknown crewmen pondering the fate of Kirk and Spock. And the second one shows Kirk and Spock with a Klingon commander who is offering leniency for their cooperation, saying that if they cooperate with him, he'll allow them to die painlessly. Then on page two, we jump back in our story to the start of the story. Spock is reading, taking readings of a planet that's showing a supply of dilithium on the planet, and of course the planet is Class M and supports human life, because what planet that they visit doesn't, really. Uh, Kirk, Spock, and McCoy transport down to the planet. Spock confirms the readings of dilithium, and McCoy starts to salivate about it and starts talking about bringing down a mining crew, which really struck me as strange right off the bat, because really, why would McCoy even give a shit about dilithium? Uh, Kirk tells him that they need to wait and see how the inhabitants on the uh, planet feel about it. Uh, never actually mentions it, but you think maybe the Prime Directive might have something to do there. <laughs> uh, Prime Directive, Prime Directive. <laughs> I mean, but it's it's like, well, we got to see what they want, but there's never any mention of you know these are people who
1: haven't developed space travel or anything like that. Anyway, Bones has, Bones has stock in a in a in a mining company. Yeah, I think so. uh, You're not
2: really in Starfleet until you have at least one planet worshipping you as gods when you leave, you know what I mean?
0: (laughs) Or you recreate some era of American history there. Exactly. So anyway, as they're discussing it, all of a sudden somebody shoots them with a stun ray from a phaser, uh, and it turns out to be a Klingon, which is strange because I didn't think Klingons used phasers. I thought they used blasters. Disruptors. Disruptors,
1: excuse me. Klingon disruptors.
0: (laughs) Yes. Why why they have a phaser, I don't know. Kirk cites a treaty between the Federation and the Klingons, and the attackers just shrug it off, saying, ah, they're only bending the treaty. Kirk does a pretty lame job of feigning an injury so that McCoy can get his uh, hypo spray and spray it into the Klingon's face. And then McCoy, in a very bold move for him, punches the Klingon, knocking him out. Spock gives a nerve pinch to another one and Kirk apparently punches the third one in the back of the head, which
1: amounts
0: <laughs> not, not just the same. And he doesn't break his fist, but anyway. <laughs> exactly. So now they're free and they head to the uh, where the planet's inhabitants are and they see that they're already speaking to the group of Klingons and they're told that they're too late, that there's already been uh, a, a uh, pact for the, the mining rights that's uh, been uh, given to them by the Grand Cal of Elias, who's a hooded and shadowy figure. After the Klingon rubs in a little bit, they transport to their ship, and Spock quickly analyzes the dilithium again, and now all of a sudden figures out that it's unstable and apparently manufactured. I don't know why he didn't find that when they first landed there. But uh, McCoy scans the alien and finds that he's an Earth human. And of course, as there is only one con man in the entire galaxy, Kirk immediately deduces that it's Harry Mudd and pulls his hood off of him. As our story continues to our second chapter, uh, Mudd explains his inane scheme and tosses the manufactured dilithium and tells them He's in neutral territory and out of the Federation's jurisdiction. To everyone's surprise, the dilithium is unstable and it explodes. Kirk realizes that the Klingons took a load of it to their ship and that they're in danger. Mud kind of shrugs it off and says that he would be a hero if the ship explodes, but Kirk says that it would immediately start a war. Kirk has himself and Spock transported back to the Enterprise and in a move that can only be explained by the needs of this very weak plot, leaves McCoy, of all people, to guard Mud. Once, once they're upon the uh, Enterprise, Kirk and Spot then transport to an unmanned area of the Klingon ship, rather than, I guess, just transporting them from the planet's surface in the first place. They need to go to the ship for, again, unknown reasons. And while this is going on, Mud has the planet's inhabitants uh, subdue McCoy with virtually no resistance. Way to go, Bones. Good job uh, holding on, on to him there. And on the Klingon ship, Spock uses his tricorder to find the phony dilithium. We cut back to Mud, who plans to make his escape, and in another plot contrivance, notifies the Klingons of Spock and Kirk's presence on the ship. And Kirk and Spock stand and gawk at the dilithium rather than transport off the ship, and an alert siren blares, and they still stand there until they're captured. Mudd starts to depart with McCoy as his prisoner, cackling about how rich he is now. We cut back to the Klingon ship where Kirk's arguments are failing, but in yet another inexplicable move, the Klingons let Spock take a tube of the dilithium and tosses it so that it could explode. I don't know why it only causes superficial damage because they were so concerned about blowing up the ship, but it does, and it allows (laughs) Kirk and Spock to make their escape. Back on the Enterprise, they track down Mud's ship and use a tractor beam to bring it in. They confiscate his gold and return it to the Klingons, who now respect that Kirk and Spock may have saved their lives. Uh, Kirk and Spock and McCoy discuss how Mud endangered the starship personnel and kidnapped one of them and take him to the brig. And that's where our story ends. It is... Exactly what I expected from a Golden. <laughs> Which is basically uh, shite. Uh, the artwork is poor uh, at best. It's got that licensed property blues where it's just people don't quite look right. They apparently had the rights to the characters because some of them are. Kind of on the money as far as how they look And clearly they were trying to get the general looks of these people Uh, But some of it is just so amateurish and weak looking Uh, In particular, uh, Roger C. Carmel Who uh, played Harry Mudd uh, There's one shot in particular I'm looking for it on my DVD right now uh, At the very last page of the story uh, In the middle panel, he looks kind of like Mario From uh, Mario Brothers <laughs> just done, but just I, I I looked up a little on him. Now, do you remember there was a TV show in the late '60s called The Mothers-in-Law uh, with uh, Eve Arden and Kay Ballard? Do either of you remember that show
1: at all? You got me on that no. one.
0: Buddy. It was actually uh, produced by Desi Arnez who. Produced it. He directed it. He he was basically, uh, you know, it was part of Desilu Studios. It was on for two seasons. In The first season, Roger Corm- Roger C. Carmel was uh, Kay Ballard's husband on it, and then he was not in the second season. But Richard Deacon, who uh, I think it was Richard Deacon, yeah, who had been on the Dick Van Dyke Show, took over the role. And uh, I looked it up a little bit, and it, it said apparently the when the show was renewed, he uh, you know he he refused to. Uh, to bypass getting a raise, which everybody on the show did in order to get the show renewed. And he got cut off of it and apparently was kind of blackballed after that. But then when I read somewhere else, it said that uh, he was actually taken off of it because he had a drug habit. And back then in the 1960s, he was only in his 30s, which shocked me. Back when he was on Star Trek, that guy, he was in his 30s. Serious? Harry Mudd? <laughs> yes.
1: <laughs> that was
0: a hard drug habit. <sighs> In 1986, he was going to re- reprise the role of Harry Mudd on an episode of TNG. And he died just before they got a chance to do it, and he was about 55 years old when he died. Man. And that was around 86. So he was around you know, mid-30s, mid to late-30s when he was on Star Trek.
1: How
2: the well, hell were they going to bring Harry Mudd into, into next gen?
0: Well, I guess, you know, the... the, the the con the, the conceit there is that people lived considerably longer, so he, he would have hmm. been around still.
1: Man, would he have like a four hundred Kwatlu a day habit or something? <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, it's funny that you see, you know your first comment was that this is exactly what you expected because I. I don't read these. I've never really read these beyond just a, a couple of issues here or there, because every time that's my reaction to is it's like, well, that was not, you know, it was it's nothing to write home about. I don't think that they're good stories. And it's also funny that you said that you, you picked this purposely because, you know, as not to conflict with anything that we're doing on, uh, on star, uh, star Trek monthly Monday, because, um, I believe it was uh Eric Peterson was talking to uh to Chris and I not long ago about possibly doing a segment on the show covering this stuff, the Gold Key Star Trek. And I basically told him and Chris, hey, you guys <laughs> knock yourselves out, but I'm not interested in this stuff. I will say this much though, is it's very funny that on the same day that uh that I was doing my homework, you know, for this show I was also doing my homework for Star Trek Monthly Monday, you know, the next one that we'll be recording. And my complaint with the TOS edition comic that we'll be covering for that show is that nothing in the the comic, you know, on the Enterprise resembles the real Enterprise. The the particular story we'll be looking at is a TOS story, you know, taking place during the course of the original television show. And nothing looks the way it should. I'll, I'll say this much for Gold Key Star Trek: it may have been wonky. The stories might have been largely really, really stupid. It was almost like Star Trek Super Stories or something, you know? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's know, the, the feel of it. Yeah, the the character likenesses were usually not very good. the The logic of the story was usually questionable. The stories themselves, I feel, never really f- captured like the true essence and feel of of the Star Trek TV show. But damn if when they're on the Enterprise, they didn't nail the look of the Enterprise. I mean, the backgrounds look like the Enterprise. The the Enterprise itself looks really,
1: really good because... Oh, yeah. Yeah, that, the ship looks it? good.
2: Yeah, I think it's page... Page four? Page two or... Let me see. I'm trying to find... Yeah, it's the fourth page there. Right in the middle of the page, there's this great shot of the Enterprise that kind of looks like it might have been taken from like one of those model kits or something. But Mm -hmm. it's really, really sharp, and you've got, you know, Ahura at her station. Looks like it's right out of an episode. Scotty manning the uh, the transporter
1: console. Plus, plus they got the squiggly lines behind them in the on the transporter panels. Mm I kind of like that.
2: Yeah,
0: because you know you got to take into account this is before they would have had the coloring method to make it all sparkly and right.
2: You know,
0: do what they can today.
2: It does. It uh, it looks really sharp.
0: Let's cut to page 8 and uh, look at Captain Kirk's face in the upper right-hand corner there. Right. I mean, it looks nothing like William Shatner.
2: <laughs> it looks like, uh, what's his name, from Get Smart is what it looks like. Yeah, <laughs> oh, it Adams. does. It looks like Don Adams. Uh, Don, Don Adams, not that Don Adams. Don Adams, yeah. Missed yeah. It
1: by that much. <laughs> That's, That's what was saying the right saying there, too. too yeah.
2: <laughs> and
0: the, the, Kling, the Klingons have nothing Klingon-looking about them at, other than that they have beards.
2: That Klingon at the bottom of that same exact page looks like uh, Ben Kingsley as the Mandarin in the upcoming Iron Man movie that's what he looks like
1: if if you look on page page eleven the sound effect when they beam out take a app disease <laughs> <laughs> <out the> <laughs>
0: And there was really no attention at all paid to these uh, aliens to trying to get a good good look for them at all?
2: They look like Holocaust camp survivors or something. They're really freaky looking. I noticed that on one – I can't find the page now, but there was one where they're all lined up standing behind one of the Klingons, and that was my first thought was that it looked like one of those those camp pictures that you see (laughs) that was like – what look are they going for with these? I mean, they're really disturbing looking. But that's about all I got. I uh, yeah, I didn't I didn't think a whole lot of this. And, it, you know, it could have been the greatest Star Trek ever. But the minute you pull back a cowl and it's Harry Mudd, I'm out. I, I, I'm done. I hate that character. Dun, 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 dun.
0: See, now, had it been Cyrano Jones, it would have been okay.
2: Yeah, I like Cyrano Jones. <laughs> well, life. you
0: know, that was, that was written for Harry Mudd, though.
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah, but I, see, I actually liked that character. Harry Mudd can't stand him. Can't stand him. He needed to take a long walk out of a short airlock. Once again, speaking ill of the dead. Sorry. I don't how have the, a problem with the actor. I just didn't like the character.
1: How did he get away from all those androids? Hardcore Phantom Mod.
0: Okay, and on to our DC.
1: <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> DC. I am firmly in the crosshairs because I am covering something that Scott will probably get to and has been covered by another podcast. But I intentionally did not listen to see what they did so that I wouldn't cover hopefully I'm covering different ground. I am covering the Star Trek Annual Number Two, put out in nineteen eighty-six by DC Comics, written by Mike W. Barr, penciled by Dan Jurgens, inked by Bob Smith. Letter is Augustin Moss. Colorist Michelle Wolfman. I do not know if uh, Michelle is related to Marv. Uh, editor Robert Gre- Uh And the cover for my book, I found conflicting cover information because on the cover it looks like Villagran. But yet some other documentation I found said that it was Dennis Cohen or Cohen. Um, so I'm not really sure who did the cover on this book. Okay. Okay. Um, we open the book with uh, the Kobayashi Maru too. Yeah, I said that is on patrol and receives a distress call. It is coming from a freighter, the Zachary Taylor. They respond to the call and once in visual range, they the ship morphs the ship morphs into a Klingon cruiser and destroys the Maru, like we didn't see that coming. A few ticks of a star date later, we see the Enterprise on a charting mission, eagerly awaiting an important message from Starfleet Command. Once the response arrives, Mr. Spock and Captain Kirk are playing their cards close to the vest as they give the message to the crew. The message is they're going home. Cheers ring out, and of course Mr. Spock is the party pooper telling Mr. Sulu to navigate safely through space before he worries about skiing down Mount Fuji. (coughs) Asshole. Later, (laughs) Later, Spock and Kirk are joined by bones while having lunch. The doctor chides that he thought Jim would be adding up his back pay. Spock, of course, puts his two cents in, which antagonizes Dr. McCoy as usual. Before the conversation can continue, a slightly larger and grayer Scotty joins the table. He wants to have a quote-unquote initiation for the rookies in the crew. Gee, I thought hazing was outlawed in the late 20th to early 21st century. Good to see some traditions hold true, like when I was in the Navy. Jim, Scotty, and Bones are all all aflutter, planning the ceremony, and Spock agrees to stand watch rather than partake when the time comes. Before the beatings, I, I mean the traditions commence, a short stop at uh, Starbase 10 is required to pick up the officer who will be refitting the ship, as well as some quote-unquote hologram tapes Mr. Scott wants. They beam over and meet Commodore Stalker, who was the senior officer, not senior citizen, that tried to take command when the command crew was rapidly aging from exposure to to a strange comet on Gamma Hydra 4. He introduces them to Commander Will Decker. That's right, that Decker, who has as much personality as Eeyore the Donkey. When Kirk tries to engage in some banter concerning Will's father, Matt, you know, the guy that accidentally killed his crew, demolished his ship, and wasted a perfectly good shuttlecraft inside a flying Thanksgiving cornucopia, he blows up and storms off. Later, as Decker meets some of the crew, Lieutenant Ahura is intrigued by his new style uniform. She likes the new ones. Scotty puts his foot in his mouth, calling them pajamas, and Ahura fires back with, hey, how about wearing a mini skirt?" Which is kind of ironic since Scotty probably wears a kilt, occasionally. On shore leave, enough said. Now, <laughs> now the time of the hazing, I mean, uh, initiation has come. Chekhov and the other crew members are gathered on the wreck deck. He is told to step into a nearby room after some ribbing by Scotty and Sulu. He steps through to be greeted by Charlton Heston as Moses. No, wait, as the old man of space. Actually, it is Captain Kirk and Chekhov goes along with everything when suddenly the surroundings change and he's being attacked by Carnelian acid snakes. Snakes. Why did it have to be snakes? Kirk tries to get to Chekhov and he cries out when suddenly they are back in the rec room and Chekhov is in shock. Um, Scotty says there was no malfunction as they have no tapes for Carnelia 7. What the hell was
2: that? <laughs> oh. sorry, folks. Bill died.
1: Oh man, what happened? I don't know. What? What? Thirty-seven. My notes got out of order. <laughs> the end.
2: The end.
0: Ah, okay.
1: All right, that's the last page. So and they all go
2: out for ice cream.
1: The okay, end. all right, all right, all right. All right, we'll pick <laughs> it back up here. Sorry. You guys were typing something. I heard a message. It threw me off. I'm, I'm sorry. Yeah, it's awful.
2: <laughs> I'm sorry. No, it was my fault. I thought I was muted.
1: Because I heard, bloop, bloop, and I was like, what? what, what? Am I too loud? What's going on? No, no, anyway. no. You're too loud. I can hear you. <laughs> <laughs> God damn it, you made my cough come back. All right, anyway. So Boy, good. everything's my fault. <laughs> All right, ready. And a one. And a two. And a one, two, three. Kirk contacts the bridge and asks Spock to, to scan for energy readings that may have affected the equipment. Spock finds nothing, and uh, before they can search further, the ship is tossed about as if under fire. Inexplicably, they are surrounded by three Klingon warships ships in orbit around Talos IV, the only planet with a death penalty for visiting. Man, that will kill tourism. After much speculation and crosstalk about what is going on, they open a channel to the Klingons to be greeted by the visage of Koloth, that smarmy, Trelane-looking Klingon. Kirk demands to know what's going on and decides to beam down, accompanied by Spock, Decker, and McCoy. Hey, nothing like beaming down most of the senior officers. Was nothing learned on Gamma Hydra 4? No, of course not, as they are quickly surrounded and taken prisoner. After being taken below, they are treated to the grim sight of Captain Pike, beeping out Funky Town while hooked to the Neuralizer. Beep, 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 beep. Beep, 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 beep. Beep, 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 beep. Beep, beep, beep. beep, beep. Spock and company lose it and attack the Klingons. It's on like Donkey Kong. Spock is double-pinching, Decker and McCoy are punching, and Kirk is, well, how the hell did he get up there anyway? Well, he's Kirking. We'll call it that. (laughs) Just when they think they have the upper hand, whammo, they are treated to the hellish world of Doug Henning. It's an illusion. And quickly recaptured. Kirk awakes to Vina, and she got real ugly real quick. They all all appear to be in fair health and ask Vina how this happened. Cue the Scooby-Doo flashback music. The Klingons had heard of Tales 4 through spies in the Federation, and decided, death penalty, bah! Upon arriving, the Talosians, buttheads, tried to fight the Klingons with illusion, alas, to no avail, as it pissed them off, and poof, no more illusion. In Scooby-Doo music. The Klingon master plan is to spread the power of the Talosians through the Empire. First, however, they wanted the Enterprise so they could slip into Federation space easily. Speaking of the enterprise each crew member is undergoing their own private hell courtesy of the klingons lieutenant ahora has become dr doom sulu is a japanese stereotype not that he would be any other type of stereotype <clears throat> scotty sadly was too fat to get out of uh, engineering and was trapped in there <laughs> and i've lost my place again i'm sorry i left <laughs> No, 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 no. As the crew is being worn down by the Klingons on the planet, Kirk and friends are given some special torture. They are treated to their own visions of doubt, racism, death, guilt, and lost love. Oddly enough, uh, I wonder if the scene was where the idea came from for Star Trek V uh, when Cybok wanted to share their pain.
2: Many the I thought the same exact thing. It's funny you say that.
1: Yeah, m- many of the stories, except for Deckers, um, you know, Mir those well of course he wasn't around because he was off with V'ger doing the old hokey you know, horizontal hokey pokey in space. Uh mirror those in the movie, Spock being a mixed breed, McCoy having guilt from the death of a loved one, and Kirk. Ah, uh, is this what Kirk held back from Cybok? He needed his pain, he wanted his pain. This time the Klingons went too far. When Kirk is forced to relive the death of Edith Keeler, his emotions surge so that he breaks free. And whew, beats the living dog shit out of the Klingon, responsible. He cracked his teeth on the deck. Is that a Klingon or is it Sonny Bono? <laughs> no, Sonny Bono hit a tree, not a deck. No, I'm
0: just looking at his face oh. when, when he's when he's smashing his face on the ground. He looks like a drawing of Sonny
1: Bono. <laughs> I'm giving you a bad illusion. No, never mind. I got you, babe. <laughs> Okay, afterward, when asked by McCoy, what did he see? He states, it was just an illusion. They beam back to the ship to find chaos. The crew were all deep in the illusions ca- caused by the Klingons. Kirk urges Bones to mix up something to stir up strong emotions to break the control. McCoy whines that he's a doctor, not a medicine man. What? Anyway. Anyway, they, they take the dachshund concoction and hook it into the life support system, which I guess you could just hook anything into a life support system with a hose. <laughs> Freeing the crew Kirk says, good luck, Bones Getting the crew back is half the battle You know, I thought knowing was half the battle At least that's what G.I. Joe said <laughs> Bo- Bone asked uh, B- Bones asks, What about the starship? Jim replies, that's the other half So the three halves, to two Anyway The Klingons <laughs> were cocky And didn't have the Enterprise and a tractor beam They go straight to warp 2 in orbit And kill everyone on the planet no, not really. They take off, spin around, and blast the Klingons with photon torpedoes. Meanwhile, on the surface, Spock and Decker have found and freed the assheads. I mean, the Telosians. The Klingons are now the guests of the Telosians in a peaceful and serene setting. Sucks to be them. And Pike and Vina are back in their fantasy world as the Enterprise returns home. We are treated to scenes of melancholy and sadness as one by one the crew says goodbye to one another upon reaching space dock. A bright point is where Kirk convinces Decker to stay in Starfleet. We end with the power trio of Kirk, Spock, and McCoy sharing a drink together as they go off to their different pursuits, which we will see in the first movie. Finally, as Kirk leaves leaves, he takes the dedication plaque down, thinking of new beginnings that lie ahead. And that's my synopsis, and I'm sticking to it.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: Very good, sir. Very good. All right. Was this your first time reading this? Yes, it was. I mean, I think I might have read it in the past, but this is the first time I really, you know, researched it. Man, this was heavy on old Trek references and people and places. Yeah. That's my first note. I'm like, wow, what about Camohydrofluoride? That's not, I you guys just covered that in uh, in Monthly Monday. That was a yep. deadly years.
0: Yep, that's my first notice. I thought they went overboard on the references.
1: Yeah, it, it was it. Yeah, it did start to be a lot.
0: I find that that's one of the problems with a lot of Star Trek and other media. Is yes. they try to shoehorn so much in to be clever. And to show how much they know about Star Trek history, that things just become way,
2: way too coincidental. It shrinks your universe, I think, when you do that. When you're when you're operating, it's my same complaint with the Star Wars. You know, ironically, it's named the expanded universe. I feel like it does the same thing by constantly referencing things that we know, places we've been, characters that we're familiar with, that sort of thing. I think it shrinks your universe rather than expands it. I mean, Star Trek itself, you know, the classic series, seldom ever referred back to anything from from past and prior episodes. And I like that. That's one of the things I really enjoy about it. Whereas the comics seem to do it constantly. I remember that being my chief complaint with this when I read it for the first time when it came out. But, you know, looking at it again now... I'm of two minds about it. On the one hand, it bugs me just because it has been overused and overdone so much. But on the other hand, say this really was the final episode of Star Trek, you know, if the show had really gone five years and then that was it and there was like a big, like, two hour finale or something, then that's kind of what you would expect, though, isn't it? That it would kind of be the big wrap up, but also kind of a look back because that's what next gen had, you know, when next gen finally wrapped up that episode kind of did both. It kind of wrapped up where they were. It kind of looked back and it also kind of looked forward. It's possibly where they might go in the future. And I I like that kind of thing. So, but I thought all good things
0: was exceptionally well-written. Whereas more often than not, a lot of these, like I said, expanded universe type things, are a little bit clumsily thrown together, and it's almost like, "Hey, look at how clever I am."
2: Normally, I would agree with you about that, but Mike W. Barr, I don't know, dude. I think he's, I think he's one of the greats. I've always really admired him. Um, the man definitely has a passion for Trek. He knows his Star Trek. Typically, when I read one of these things, I can pick him apart. On little nitpicky continuity things, or they'll get this detail wrong or that detail wrong, and I probably could if I really put my mind to this one. But I can read this one and really enjoy it for the aspect of dude knows is Star Trek, you know, yeah. and, and he really is nailing all the beats. There were a couple little nitpicky things here and there, but I'll tell you, I'll, I'll give the pass on all of that for the moment in this, there's two moments in this that I think are, are, are just phenomenal and just quintessential star Trek. And that's when they beam down and Spock finds, uh, the Klingons torturing captain Pike and goes ape shit. I love yeah, that. That, that moment. That was very good. Great because, you know, uh, I, I'm trying to remember who it was. I think it was Biblio Mike that kind of turned my opinion about the cage and the menagerie and, and really pointing out what a, Truly powerful episode that is because it's basically Spock's love for his former captain, you know, and, and the links that he would go to, and when I realized the strong parallels between that between that episode and Star Trek Three, which is one of my favorites of the movies, then then I came to appreciate it more, and I kind of felt like this was a nice callback to that. The other great moment in this is um, when Kirk is made to relive the death of Edith Keeler yeah. snaps out of it and just beats that Klingon to death is awesome. Yeah, that, that
0: guy's gotta be dead.
2: Yeah. I mean Kirk is he's got him and he's just smashing his face. <laughs> out
0: on the deck. I mean, yeah. that- he smashes his Sonny Bono face right into the ground and then there's blood splashing up.
2: Yep, I think he just so pulverized his head. He's
0: gotta be dead. I, but I, I could have done without Commandus, Commodore Stalker, the stupidest Commodore in all of Starfleet. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I also could have done without uh, Captain Koloff, the most wussy Klingon ever.
2: He doesn't. Uh, that's the one thing that bugged me in this is I thought that the likenesses were pretty good except for uh, yeah. anybody beyond... The Starfleet guys, I, Koloth
1: doesn't look like Koloth at all. I don't think that's why my in my synopsis, when I when I'm like Koloth, wait a minute, Now no, Kang was Michael and Sara. Now like, that Kang is a, is a Klingon. <laughs> yeah, but I'm like Koloth, and I'm like, and I I I had to type it. I'm like, oh, it's that's William Campbell. Duh, but it's not. <laughs> it's not not no, not in that picture at all. It's like you you can't tell at all.
2: You know what though, come to think of it, the other likenesses are pretty good cuz uh Spock's mother looks like uh what's her name? Jane Wyman. Jane Wyman, thank you. And uh Decker looks like Decker and Edith Keeler looks like
1: uh Keeler really looks like Joan Collins. Joan
2: Collins, yeah. yeah
0: I thought I thought for for a licensed product I thought the odd in this was excellent.
2: She looks it's... like an oriental Joan Collins, but she does look <laughs> like Joan Collins.
1: Well, one shot, yeah.
0: The, the characters are kind of drawn in a, in a simple way, but they all kind of capture the look without having that that posed look that they had in the gold key book.
2: Yes. Yeah.
0: So I really like that. I didn't like the uh, Reed Richards as the, uh, as the engineer of the Enterprise, though. I don't know. I thought they overdid the gray on Scotty a little.
1: I'm telling you, he looks a little heavier.
0: Well, he was beefing up by that point, though. Not really. I didn't think he started
2: beefing up until Star Trek Two. Eh, that, that's yeah, you're right. I do like that he had that they showed that he had grown a mustache by the end of the series, though. I thought that was a nice once you know, once again it was a nice little bridge between this and the first movie. Oh, and uh, Michelle Wolfman is was Marv Wolfman's wife.
1: Yeah. Oh, okay, okay.
2: Yeah. And man,
0: that's uh, the uh, notes I got.
2: It's funny because I always look back at this book and think of this as, as, you know, pre-Booster Gold Jurgens, but I looked that up today, too, and it turns out it's not, that that this was concurrent at the same time, so I I guess I have to chalk up the kind of, you know proto-Jurgens look, you know, to maybe maybe it's Bob Smith's inks or something, because it's clearly Jurgens, but it doesn't look like that nice, refined Jurgens that he, you know, that right. his distinct style that he would eventually adopt.
1: Well, maybe he's just more, you know, he's trying to keep the likenesses, and that's kind of changing his style.
2: Yeah. That's good. I really do like this issue. I always thought this was one of the better ones, because typically mean, annuals this- are, I'm sorry?
1: No, 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 no. Go ahead.
2: I was just gonna say, typically annuals are very hit and miss, mostly miss. They're usually just like throwaway stories and and not you know anything to write home about. But this is actually a really solid story. I always liked the first annual, which was the first mission, and then this annual it was the last mission. I always thought those were really really good. Yeah,
1: but this this is so so much of this. I mean, it's straight. Did they take this straight? I mean this into star trek 5 because these scenes are just almost identical i mean in their theme not right. obviously in all of it but you know with spock uh you know he's being tortured by well not tortured but confronted by by his mother and it was his father in the movie you know saying he was so human and, and it was it, it was McCoy's father that died and here he's, he's saying that his daughter died because he wasn't there right and he, and then Decker, well, you know, he he's haunted by the crew. He wasn't in Star Trek Five, obviously, but you know, he's haunted by by the crew. And of course, we never got to see what Kirk's pain was because he's you know needs pain. But I'm telling you, this had to you know, it's too much too much of a coincidence.
2: Yeah, oh. it it was definitely what I thought of re- rereading this too. As I was like, wow, this has strong parallels to uh, to Star Trek Five. I thought.
1: Oh, and I call bullshit on two things. All right, the Klingons didn't raise their shields. Bullshit. <laughs> okay, and two. All right, young ensign Ricky is is told when they're dis, when they're retrofitting the ship. Hey, go up to the bridge and get that dedication plaque. And it, and he goes up. What dedication plaque? And then he gets drummed out of Starfleet because uh, somebody <laughs> stole the dedication plaque. <laughs> I kept telling you it was there, and then I came back, it was gone. Damn you, Kirk!
2: I'll tell you one thing that I appreciated reading this for the first time is that it does uh, mesh up very nicely with um, the Lost Years novel, which I always really enjoyed. I always thought that was a really good Star Trek book. I
1: I haven't read them all.
2: Yeah, there's. I think there's four of them all together, and uh, I have yet to read them all myself. But the, the ones that I have read, I've really enjoyed, especially the first one. The Lost Years is a really, really good book.
1: It's a little unbelievable in here that Kirk could just turn, a, could turn around Decker so quickly after he's been so mopey through the whole thing. You know, oh, my dad's crazy, blah, blah, blah.
2: I didn't like the portrayal of Decker in this because I know he's... You know, he's only in the motion picture. He's not, you know, you know, he doesn't have a really big role or anything like that. He's, he's kind of just sloughed off at the end of that movie. But I like that character a lot. And I think that th- this portrayal in this issue kind of does him a disservice, I think. It makes him, yeah, you know, seem like I agree. kind of I, a I th- prick.
0: I And I thought he was kind of stoic in the movie. Right. Whereas in this, he's all like emo and whiny. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, you, you don't you know you, you don't have sympathy for him like in the movie you have sympathy for him because he seems you know he you could see he's trying to show strength in a bad situation right and and in this one it's you know like you know, just go to your room and cry decker <laughs> yeah well
2: have we got time for the last one you think yeah, i think we could squeeze one more in, all right, right we'll squeeze one more in hi heroes Fasten your seatbelts, because Mighty Marvel is about to take you to a new dimension. For this one, we're going to April 1998. For uh, This is a Marvel Paramount Comics book. This is at a time when uh, Marvel had reacquired the Star Trek license for a time, and they were doing a whole number of Star Trek books. This particular issue is Star Trek Voyager. Splashdown, number one. Now, this Splashdown was a mini series, I think a three-parter, if I'm not mistaken. I've actually never read it before, but I've heard really good things about it. I've long been curious to check it out, but all I ever had was just this one issue. But I thought, you know, I want to do something different. If we're going to do a Star Trek special, I wanted to do something that basically we can't do on Star Trek Monthly Monday just by the nature of those shows and where we are and trying to follow a linear progression and all that crap. So I I picked this one out, thinking, "Well, you know, we'll see." Original cover price was two dollars fifty cents. Written by Lori S. Sutton, who I don't know if she's related to the Sutton that used to uh, be an artist. Tom, I think, was his name. Tom Sutton, yeah, artist. I I don't know if they're related or not. Uh, Pencils by Terry Pallet, Al Milgram on the inks, Chris Eliopoulos does the letters, Matt Webb on colors. Tim Tui, I don't know how you pronounce this name, T-U-O-H-Y, is the editor. Bob Harris, editor-in-chief. Aboard the starship Voyager, Captain Janeway is giving First Officer Chakotay a scuba diving lesson on the holodeck when they are called to the bridge to look at some weird skeets from Booster Gold-looking drone things. Despite a strong and very intelligent warning from Tuvok and all evidence that these things are bad news, Janeway stupidly hails the little buggers and they immediately awake and attack the ship. Voyager, which was already operating at reduced power levels from previous encounters, takes a serious ass-kicking from these drones and the sitch goes from bad to are you freaking kidding me when a rallying cry is sent out by the attackers, and it's answered by dozens more of these things. So, weapons (laughs) (laughs) Weapons useless, shields failing, and destruction imminent, the crew backtrack uh, the place from where the uh, rallying call was answered from in an attempt to find a way to stop this attack. The coordinates bring them to a water world that is surrounded by a dense cloud of volcanic ash and debris, and Janeway orders navigator Tom Paris to dive into the atmosphere in an attempt to scrape off their pursuers. This works, but the severe damage to the ship prevents Tom from being able to bring Voyager out of her dive, and after several skips across the surface of the ocean world, the bow of the ship catches, the vessel actually somersaults comes down hard and immediately begins to drop like a rock. Dead and without power to support the structural integrity field, Voyager sinks as engineering floods. I loved this issue. I thought it was really awesome. I thought the art was fantastic I am a sucker for starships crashing. I don't I can't tell you what it is, but every time a starship actually crashes on the surface of a planet, I'm there for that shit. I love it. And this is, you know, in a depicted, you know, in a comic book form, this is probably the best one I've ever seen. And I'm also a big sucker for water worlds. I, I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's it's a callback to... Star Wars. You know, yeah, exactly. The first Star Wars expanded universe story with with Luke on the water planet or what. But I'll tell you, there is a two-page splash in this thing. And again, the damn pages aren't numbered, but it's right toward the end of this issue. Two-page splash of Voyager, um, well, doing what the cover says. It splash down. It, it actually hits the surface and comes to rest and starts to sink and damn it it's beautiful it's the colors are fantastic the ship just looks massive there's a huge uh splash you know a big wave coming off of it it just really really looks great i thought the character likenesses were fantastic they really look like the characters the dialogue was good. It really, you know, they sound like the characters. It feels like the show. Now, I know that, that you know, Voyager is the butt of a lot of jokes that a lot of people don't dig on the show. A lot of people just want to give it nothing but grief and rip on it. I came to appreciate Voyager. If if you can kind of weed your way through the first couple of seasons up until, you know, Seven joins the cast and the Borg come in and all that, I, I came to really enjoy it. And by the end of it, I would consider myself a Voyager fan, you know, not my favorite series. There are, you know, plenty of others that I liked better, but, uh, but you know, I appreciated it and I really appreciate the way that this issue really gave me more of, of what I liked about the show when it was clicking really well. But that's about all I got. And uh, you know, I'll tell you the big thing on this one is it, it did its job. It makes me want to continue. It makes me want to read the rest of the series. I got to know how they're going to get out of this. Hmm. What'd you guys think? I thought it was think? really good.
1: Yeah, I. there's only one thing I take that I call, well, again, bullshit alert, bullshit alert. <laughs> they do a somersault, they're all dead. I don't care. Yeah. National dampeners, my ass. If you flip over completely like that, they're not going to live through that. That's it. Other than that, it's, yeah. Other than, you know, you know not taking two vox advice, advice and uh, hailing the probes, which wasn't a very smart move. But, hey, it's Janeway. She's pushy.
2: Yeah, well, she, she did this a lot, but anytime they would do this on Star Trek or, or pretty much any show where there's, like, somebody in charge and they have other people that they look to for advice, you know, you, you've got an expert at their job, right? Their job is to advise you and tell you their honest opinion, you know, their professional opinion, what I think the situation is. I hate it when they're just kind of sloughed off as like, well, I'm the captain and I just – you know, I appreciate your advice, but now I'm going to do my own thing. He's the freaking tactical expert. Yep, exactly. So, and,
1: oh, I mean, I, I like you. I liked Voyager when it was on mm-hmm. and, um, and I also liked Enterprise when it was on. I know mm-hmm. a lot of people have beef with that show. But, but yeah, I mean, Tuvok was, you know, he was a spy, you know, because he was a spy in the Maquis. He knew tactics. He's been right. in Starfleet. He was on Sulu's ship, for God's sakes. Right. You know, he's been in Starfleet for, you know, well, obviously he took a break. But, I mean, he's been around for a long time and she just blows him off.
2: Right. Well, up until... Seven came along Tuvok really was the to me he was kind of the breakout character you know every every series of star trek always seemed to have you know that that one breakout character you know you had spock in the original and data and and next gen to me it was always tuvok i really enjoyed that character and you know here they're supposed to be like best buddies and she really looks you know all through the series she always looked to him and his advice and stuff and this is one time that it would seem like the evidence of their own eyes and their own sensors would bear him out. And he says, you know, I just don't think it's a good idea to call to these things. And she's like, well, you know, it it might avail us something useful because we're running low on energy. So she calls to him, and (laughs) it's it's just the worst move. I mean, you, you can only chalk so much of that up to just bad luck. I mean, she didn't take... You know, advice that she really should have. But I don't want to belabor the point. I'll tell you one thing, though. The, the writer on this, Lori Sutton, she really knows her Star Trek because one moment in this that I was going to call bullshit on was somebody just before, their, was just before they crash. They're headed into the atmosphere. Somebody called a blue alert. And I was like, blue alert? What? And I was like, that's bullshit. I've never heard of a blue alert. So I looked it up. Turns out, yep, it's established Star Trek. They do actually uh, call blue alerts from time to time. It has something to do, my interpretation of it had something to do with the fact that they were headed into a planet's atmosphere. And so that's what it was about. It was, you know, that, you know, blue for blue skies. I don't know, but that's what it, uh, you know, what the whole thing meant. So I thought that was very interesting that, you know, clearly she knows her track, and she knows that aspect better than me, so I thought that was pretty cool. But uh yeah, I gotta read the rest of this now. I'm very curious to see what happens. Because you know, you you've combined some of my favorite storytelling elements. You know, you've crashed a starship and you know it's it's on the planet, it's dead in the in the water, literally. And I love a good, you know, sinking ship story, so you know. 've got you 've got all these nice combination of factors. I really am curious to see where this goes from here. How the hell are they going to get out of this so i hope it's uh, i hope it sees i 'll try to report back on it
0: but uh, i would i just you know you commented on Voyager and how it takes a lot of shit basically mm-hmm. uh, personally i i you know they haven 't done this trek series that i don't like yet. I know you're not a big fan of d s nine but I love that series too. But uh, I always saw Voyager as more uh, of the spirit of the original series than any of the other series had, because the way they set up the series with them being in the other quadrant, it had that sense of exploration that the first original series tried to have instead of having this ongoing dramatic narrative uh, you know, they did have the ongoing thing that they were trying to go home and every once in a while they would have a, you know, recurring villain or, you know, re- recurring uh species that they were battling the Kazon. with. Yeah, the Kazan or, or even the Borg, uh or the I don't even remember what species whatever that they fought with the Borg. Uh they're they, seven two eight four yeah, eight four seven two five oh, three oh nine, I think is what it was. Yeah, Jenny. Uh, but they uh you know the the as as a general rule, the series, you know, a lot there were a lot of one and done episodes, which they, you know, didn't always do in all the other series, uh, and and I kind of like that feel about it. I thought the art in this was excellent. Mm-hmm. It really captured, uh, you know, you you could see it. They did in this what we talked about with them having the uh, transporter effect in that gold key book that they couldn't do spectacular things with the coloring because they didn't have the process back then. By this time, they did have the process and, and things that they did with the uh, with the ship as it was traveling and everything just were really, really well done. Uh, I do concede Bill's point that if they flipped over that way, they'd all be dead, but yeah. I, I do kind of like the way they show them inside the ship, uh, you know, with just basically flying all over the place. <laughs> you know, all ass that, over tea kettle. Yeah, yeah I love it. That the, the inertial dampeners aren't going to stop them from flying around with that. You know, I, I think ultimately it would probably, uh, you know, breach the warp core and the whole ship would explode. But, you know, you, you give some conceits, conceits to it. Uh, and again, licensed characters, but they look good. They don't look, you know, posed. Definitely. And that's all I got. Oh, and it's a four-issue series. You were asking three or four, four.
2: Oh, is it four? Yeah. Cool. Yeah, I've definitely got to read the rest of it. I'm very curious how they how they go about getting out of this. Plus, I mean, there's a great panel. Ah, damn, pages aren't numbered. But it's the panel right after everybody's just going head over heels and flipping and tossing all over the place. Oh, yeah. And there's a great shot of the uh, the ship you know, slowly sinking bow first and you can see like the light streaming in from the surface above and it's just a beautiful, beautiful shot. I I really like that. I mean, the, the artist really captured the look of, you know, something underwater in that moment. I thought it was fantastic. And this is an artist I'm not familiar. I don't know that I've ever heard this name before this, um, is that Terry Pallet? P A L L O T. I That's not a name I think I've ever heard before. Are you guys familiar with this artist? Mm-mm, not at all. Yeah, I don't even know if it's a man or a woman. And I've, I've generally
0: found Al Milgram, who did the inking on this, you know, serviceable but nothing yeah. spectacular. Uh, so, you know, I I don't know how much input he
2: had on it. It's good though. I really like it, and I like Matt Webb's uh, colors too. He's he's a hell of a, a good colorist. But yeah, yeah. It's
0: very very well done in this one.
2: But that's all I got. I, I think this was a lot of fun, guys. This was cool to look at uh, different. It
1: looks like Terry Palette um, has done a lot of property work. Hmm. Star Trek: Deep Space Nine, Star Trek: First Contact, sort of Dracula, Alien Nation, Eight Nation, oh, Avengers and the Infinity Gauntlet. That's that other series that came out in 2010, Chaos War. Oh, there's a lot of stuff here. Hmm. I, I, you know, I I never read Chaos War, but
0: I have it. And I remember the artwork being pretty decent. Or at least that, that was my initial impression of it. Maybe if I read it, I'd think differently. But right now, I seem to remember thinking it was pretty good.
2: Hmm. going have to seek out more of this, this person. Male Seeking or female.
1: New artists and new,
2: <laughs> and new civilizations. civilizations. To both, like, civilizations well i think that's it for this time i just want to throw out a quick plug but if by some miracle you're listening to this show and you're not aware that every single month that we cover star trek on two true freaks go check that out it's the second monday of every month star trek monthly monday where we look at a a classic tos episode uh we're also covering uh comics on there and we do uh, Next Gen. We cover an episode of Next Gen, and uh, we're just about to start covering the uh, DC Comics Next Gen series from number one on that show. So check it out if you and want more Star Trek.
1: And TOS does not stand for the old shit.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: uh, my
0: my suggestion <laughs> now that we're done with this, my suggestion for our next theme episode, mm-hmm. because you and I had discussed this probably a year ago, mm-hmm. I say we do a Planet of the Apes
2: Hell, property yes! I was trying to read all of *Planet of the Apes* not long ago, and damned if I didn't make it to almost the very end of the uh, the Marvel black and white book before I, I just I kind of petered out. But I, I, I'm anxious to finish it up because then I want to go and read the adventure comics apes series from beginning to end because I remember really enjoying that, but I never read it you know in total. I had mm-hmm. like, scattered issues of it, but whenever I would read it, I really enjoyed it.
0: Well, I was thinking we could do like mm-hmm. one book from the Marvel series, one book from the Adventure Comics series, and then one book from the recent Boom Studios stuff.
2: That's not a bad idea. That's not a yeah, bad idea at all. Some of those. Back to the Bins is produced in association with the Two True Freaks podcast, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.libson.com and is a registered trademark of DemanzoCor Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Back to the Bins is a proud member of both the League of Comic Book Podcasts, which you may find at comicbooknoise.com slash league, and also the Comics Podcast Network, which you may find at comicspodcasts.com. Take a moment to stop by their respective sites and support their other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week. It's Megacon from March 15th through the 17th, 2013 at the Orange County Convention Center in Orlando, Florida. Megacon is the Southeast's largest comic book, science fiction, fantasy, anime, gaming, toys, multimedia event. The showroom has over 110,000 square feet of exhibitor space. Meet your favorite comic book artists, get autographs from your favorite celebrities, enter a costume contest, visit continuous anime viewing rooms, view the Indie Film Festival, and so much more. You don't want to miss it. One-day tickets are $24.49 in advance, $30 at the door. Or go for all three days for just $5,804 in advance or $60 at the door. I, Scott Gardner, will be there Saturday, March 16th from open to close, wandering the floor in my Two True Freaks t-shirt. Again, that's Megacon. March 15th through the 17th, 2013 at the Orange County Convention Center, Hall D, that's 9800 International Drive, Orlando, Florida. Be there.